0: So back in July at uh, Panama City Beach, Roberta looked up and experienced what all parents dread: She couldn't find her children. Pretty quickly, her eyes darted to the water and she heard her children's screams from afar. It turns out that the riptide had pulled them into 15 feet of water. A lot of people warned her not to go in after them and she and her mother ignored those warnings and they ran in and raced to their rescue. But they found themselves also pulled and stuck in 15 feet of water. So another woman, Jessica, who had just stopped at the beach with her husband for dinner, she found a discarded boogie board. And when she saw people pointing at the water, she thought that they were pointing at sharks. But it turned out, obviously, that somebody was drowning. And so uh, what she did, uh, CBS News, the, the people who reported this originally, quote her as saying, These people are not drowning today. It's not happening. Were going to get them out and she took her boogie board and she began swimming towards the family and then this is the truly amazing part jessica's husband and some other men started a chain uh, to bring everybody back to the shore some some of those people in the chain couldn't even swim uh, but they stayed in the shallow parts and eventually 80 people strangers were involved and got within feet of this family Jessica and her husband and some others towed Roberta's family uh, to the chain where they kind of passed them along and got them safely to the shore. Roberta's mother suffered a heart attack and her nephew had a broken hand, but otherwise everyone was safe. They actually made a full recovery as well. Here's what Roberta said after the whole ordeal. I am so grateful. These people were God's angels that were in the right place at the right time. I owe my life and my family's life to them. Without them, we wouldn't be here. She said, it's so cool to see how we have our own lives and we're constantly going at this fast pace, but when somebody needs help, everybody drops everything and helps. That was really inspiring to see that we still have that. With everything going on in the world, we still have humanity, she said. That's a great story, right? It's amazing that these strangers would uh, come together in such a way and, like, even be able to organize in that way and help this family. Uh, It's been an inspiring story for me to read. So I want to tell you another story. This one's from a year earlier. So a man about as old as me, his name was Mark, he was walking back from having some drinks with friends, and he stopped at a 7-Eleven, which is where he met his attacker on the sidewalk. He was punched in the face, and he fell unconscious into the road, was crumpled up near the curb. After that, two men came up, rifled through his pockets, stealing his phone and his wallet. So he laid in the street for about two minutes. Across the street, at the bar where he had just come from, there were people, onlookers, lingering. In the parking lot of the 7-Eleven, his fellow customers looked on. The video shows a few people who actually walked up to him, crouched down, got back up and just kept walking and moved on. So after two minutes of laying unconscious in the street, a taxi cab came and actually ran him over and took his life. So their inaction cost him his life. No one got involved in the altercation. No one called the police. No one attempted to move him from the road or block traffic while they were waiting for help to come. No one from the bar, no one from the 7-Eleven. No one who drove by and might have seen him. They just watched, and they crouched over him. They looked intently at him, and they walked away and went on with their lives. Why? So the Chicago Tribune, the one who originally reported this, they actually interviewed some psychologists and some lawyers, and it turns out that this is actually a common occurrence. Psychologists call it the diffusion of responsibility, or maybe you've heard it called the bystander effect. Someone else will do it. In fact, according to social psychologists, the probability that somebody will help in these instances is inversely related to the number of people surrounding the incident. So the greater the number of people, the less likely someone is to help. Reasons cited were things like safety or believing that someone else more qualified will do it, not wanting to get tied up with the legal ramifications uh, afterwards, worrying that helping people will make them look foolish. Inaction breeding more inaction. Now apparently, they don't feel as guilty if no one else is doing something. So they're looking to the crowd for cues, but how can you believe that somebody else will do it, but still use other people not doing it as an excuse for inaction? Here's what the woman who raised Mark said. If I had seen the person lying in the road, at least... I would have tried to stop the cars from coming and then called the police. I just don't understand people today. So we've got two very different stories. We've got a story of activity and a story of inactivity. A story of love and a story of passivity. James is gonna hold a mirror up to us today and ask us which story are we a part of? Are we going to be passive or are we going to love? Will we hear and respond, or will we just hear and then move on with our lives? So James is going to lay out two profiles for us, two religions. We're going to look at the passive hearer of the word, and then the doer of the word. James's big argument in this passage, and even in this whole letter, is that our relationship with God should visibly transform our lives and result in the good of the people around us. So we're going to ask this question. What gets us from here to there? How do we move from being those who only hear the word to those who actively embrace its power to shape our everyday lives? We're going to bounce around this passage a little bit today. I've broken it down into the two parts that we just talked about, the passive hearer and the person who hears and does the word. So as I go through both of these, we're going to look at the root, the reality, and the religion of each. So we're going to contrast their origins. We're going to look at their characteristics, and then we're going to assess their spiritual worth. So let's look at what James has to say about the root of the passive listener. Now remember, he's talking to professed believers here. When he addressed uh, his letter to brothers and sisters, that's what he's saying. He's saying fellow Christians. So he's not talking to non-believers. He's talking to us. Look at me at verse 22 through 24. James says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once he forgets what he looks like. So the first thing we see from James is that the passive hearer is deceiving himself or herself. The self-deceit James is talking about has to do with the word of God and our own spiritual state. See, we'll get to this, but he's about to contrast this with the person who hears and does the word. And James is giving this illustration of a person in the mirror to expand on this idea of self-deceit. You know, when I was reading this, I had to ask the question, what would make a person look in the mirror and forget their face right away? My first thought was hastiness, right? If he didn't get a good look because he's in a rush, he might forget what he looked like. But then we see from the text that this person looked intently at their face. So this wasn't a quick glance. To look intently is to look with attention. So this man's taking it in, and yet he walks away and forgets. I mean, I can't speak to how much attention was needed of what he saw. I mean, did he need to shave? Was his hair gnarly? Did he... Have to brush his teeth, we'll never know. But James is talking about someone whose attention was brought to something and yet did nothing. So the inaction of this man is what we want to pay attention to. One way to think about uh, this man in the mirror is to ask ourselves when we see something that needs attention and we fail to act, what are some reasons behind that? Every once in a while, uh, I'll be driving and hear something on the radio that's interesting like a story on like npr or wgbh or whatever and uh, i heard one this week about this guy called uh dr harvey wiley from the 18th century and he is called the father of the fda so like as the industrial revolution rolled around uh work moved from farm to factory and so did food and what i mean by that is uh people couldn't afford food from the farm anymore So the major food companies, in a deceptive attempt to make food more affordable, used various fillers and preservatives. Some of these were crazy, like I couldn't imagine eating this stuff. Uh, They would add chalk to milk to make it whiter. They'd add formaldehyde and borax as a means to preserve it. Uh, They would grind up stone as a filler for bread. And uh, The one that hurts me the most is that they would use dyed sawdust as coffee. How sad is that? They'd mix a little bit of coffee in there, but it was pretty much dyed sawdust and people were, you know, steeping that and drinking it. Uh, that, Or they would uh, make molded wax coffee beans if people were buying the beans whole. Cinnamon was brick dust. It's Unbelievable. So needless to say, people were getting sick and even dying, and Dr. Wiley, who worked for the Department of Agriculture, he had a small lab, and he decided that he was going to dedicate that lab to uncovering the harmful effects of these compounds in food. And he spent 20 years trying to tell the world that these chemicals were killing them. Finally, he got a group together, and they were called the Poison Squad, and it was a group of government men that had agreed to uh, have three meals a day, but also a capsule with these various chemicals with each meal that they were taking. Obviously, they got really sick, and uh, none of them died, but um, they were actually the catalyst of the first big law on food regulation that we've had in the United States. So, you can thank Dr. Wiley that you're no longer drinking steep sawdust or sprinkling brick dust on your latte or whatever. So one thing the interview asked, which, uh, which was my question, where was the public outcry? Some of this stuff is just plain obvious. If you got waxed coffee beans, like you'd know. If you're drinking sawdust, you're probably not. The crunch of stone dust in your bread, I mean, come on. So that brings us actually back to our question. Why, when there's something of serious consequence, do we choose passivity instead of activity? What makes someone whose family is sick and dying because of their poisonous food stay silent? How do we come to the Word of God? Uh, how do we come to the Word of God given to us by the creator of the universe and walk away unchanged? It's a good question for us. James says that it's self-deceit. Now self-deceit manifests itself, I think, in the form of badly ordered priorities. We saw that in the story of the passive bystanders, right? they Prioritizing all these things besides this other person's life. See, how we come to the word of God matters. James tells us in verse 21 to receive the word with meekness. Now, meekness is just another word for humility or gentleness. We often come to the word with the idea that we're the only ones who have the right to say what's right for us. That's a kind of Western way, right? Or really the human way. How can we expect to be doers of the word, when we've already determined that our will supersedes God's will. So how do some of these broadly ordered priorities play out? What prevents us from taking action, whether it's food safety or the word of God? One of them is busyness. Other things are more important right now. I have no time to even read this, let alone process how I should live it out. Maybe it's impatience for you. It's Not a one and done thing, this is taking too long, this is not a flash in the pan type of thing that I wanted it to be, and endurance is required. We heard that a lot in last week's sermon, uh, the importance of endurance. Maybe it's self-consciousness, how will I look if my life points to Jesus, if the way I live puts me on the radar, if I have to give an explanation for why I do what I do. This is where laziness comes in. This is where self-consciousness comes in. This is where self-gratification overrules self-giving. This is where self-protection prevails over love. Or maybe we just feel powerless. I'm just one person. I have no voice, no ability to affect the world around me. I've actually been there. I've Uh, with the Word of God, but also, I mean, I've watched documentaries, I've heard testimonies about injustices that have inspired me, that have frustrated me, that have made me feel like I need to do something. And you know what I did? Nothing. One reason I can cite is that uh, I felt like, what can I do? The problem is so big, and I'm just one guy. Maybe the man in the mirror that James is talking about looks in the mirror and sees a problem so big that he doesn't know what to do about it. When you come to the Word of God, do you ever feel like you're a problem so big that you don't know what to do about it? Or maybe the Word of God is so lofty to you that uh, you don't even know where to start, or um, maybe you're in a spiritual, rut. either way, powerlessness will lead to passivity. But now, the greatest hindrance to being a doer of the Word of God is, of course, doubt or unbelief. If you don't believe something, it's not going to change your life. Someone can tell you there's poison in your food till they're blue, but if you don't believe them, you're going to still drink your milk. You're going to still eat your stone dust bread. Unexplored and unchallenged doubt is one of the greatest hindrances to change. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't have our doubts and that uh, faith doesn't come with doubts. It does, but we need to explore those. We need to challenge them. We need to explore them with the word of God and challenge them with the word of God. Here's a good example of uh, self deceit. I know two 50 plus year old men who look in the mirror, and when they look in the mirror, they see the color of hair that they have when they were 30. And it's not the same color. I mean, I'm not going to name them, but I've said, that's not your hair color. Like, no, no, I'm blonde. It's like, no, your hair's white. I have brown hair. No, it's white. It's a real thing. This is how we can approach the Word of God. So the passive hearer is self-deceived and is someone who comes to the Word of God with mixed-up priorities. Let's just humble ourselves right now and just admit that we've all approached God's Word this way. If it was uncommon, James wouldn't have broadly written it to his original readers. God wants us to read these words and to be challenged by them. So here's what James has to say uh, to us in our natural drift toward self-centered passivity instead of Christ-centered activity. Look at me in verse nineteen. James says, "Know this, my beloved brothers, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for anger for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so now we've already admitted that we have a listening problem, but really it's a problem with self-centeredness. At first, it might look like James is actually calling us to be passive in this in this short part of the passage, but he's actually calling us to address our reluctance to actively listen. To listen without thinking that we already have the answer. That we can, uh, that we uh, come to the word of God with our own uh, view of what's right instead of looking to God's word to determine what's right for us. Because, you know, we can hear without listening. There are people who can take in everything you say And repeat it back to you. And dump any and all implications of what you said. We can memorize Bible verses and have no idea what they mean. If you talk to some people who grew up in that church and left, they'll tell you that they can still remember the Bible verses that they learned in the kids' program. But the words mean nothing to them. And they'll tell you that. James is calling us to listen without the false sense that we're the center of the universe. He says, be slow to anger. See, to be angered quickly is to have a lot of pride. I mean, if, you, if your first reaction is to be angry at somebody, then you have a, a deep sensitivity to criticism, to opposition, to whatever might be in opposition to your views. Now, anger can be righteous, right? I mean, when we see injustice, we should rightly become angry. But anger isn't meant to be a lasting thing. Emotion And it's really not a good motivator. So James is talking about anger that's not righteous. If you picture a person who's quick to speak, never listens, gets angry really easily, they're usually not caring for others, right? So James says our anger doesn't produce the righteousness of God. Our anger doesn't lead to the righteous life that God has intended for us. A guy named J.A. Montier probably just botched his last name. He puts it well. He says, Anger is not a pure emotion. It's usually heavily impregnated with sin, self-importance, self-assertion, intolerance, stubbornness. These sound a lot like the hindrances to transformation that we just talked about, right? He goes on. Most of us would have to confess that holy anger belongs in a state of sanctification or spiritual maturity to which we have not attained. James is writing of us and to us. Your anger does not bring about the righteous plans of God. So if we're to be doers of the word, we need to be quick to listen. We need to be slow to speak. We need to be slow to anger. We need to remove ourselves from the center of the universe. The reality is that we default toward the opposite. That's the reality of the passive hearer. I want to keep reminding you that when James is talking about this passive hearer, he's talking about professed believers. James isn't blasting the world for its issues. He's blasting us, the religious people. The one who hears the word but fails to do the word is self-deceived. Not just in how they approach the word, but how they approach religion. Look at me at verse 26 where James addresses the religion of the passive hearer. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So James says that worthless religion is the trademark of the one who comes to the word of God with no intention of transformation. James is again talking about an unbridled tongue, a deceived heart, constant output with little desire for input. You know, we're responsible for controlling our words. We're responsible even for deceiving ourselves. There's no exception clause here for personality type or background or upbringing. Our passivity doesn't remove our responsibility. When we don't take responsibility for obeying God's word, our religion becomes worthless. So religion here is just a broad term used a couple times in the Bible, meaning outward practice that honors God what pleases God, what honors God, is the practice of his word. You know, we can avoid God's word and still uh, busy ourselves with things that make us look like we're practicing his word, uh, make us look like we're outwardly honoring God. You can serve in the church without applying the word of God. You can even preach from the word of God without applying the word of God. How crazy is that? The root of the passive cure is self-deception. The reality is self-centeredness, and the resulting religion is worthless. That's what James says. So that's a pretty bleak picture, right? I'm trying to get the negative out of the way in the first half of this sermon. James is painting these contrasting pictures to draw us away from one and toward another. So, what does it look like to hear the word and do the word? What does a religion of word-based activity look like? Let's look at the root of the one who's transformed by the word, the one who hears the word and does the word, the one who lives the word. Look at me at James 1.21. This is right after he tells us uh, that our anger doesn't bring about the righteousness of God. He says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So if I could sum up this verse with one word, it would be repentance. The root of the word doer is repentance. Now, Repentance is just a mind change that leads to a life change, especially as it pertains to following God. So why, why that word? Because we all start as the hearer only, if even that. We need to acknowledge that, and we need to acknowledge that our default approach to God's word is, is that, to be just a hearer. I spend a lot of time talking about how uh, we're supposed to receive the word of God with meekness. and uh, Approaching the word of God in the opposite way is going to kill transformation in our lives. So contrary to the self-centeredness that gives way to quick anger is a humble heart that comes to God's word for life. For the Christian, he's calling us out to be who we truly are. He's telling us to receive the implanted word. And when James says implanted word, he's indicating that this is something in us already. He says, receive the implanted word, which is able to save your soul. So this is a life saving word. If we want to truly be doers of the word, we need to receive it and recognize its power. This is the word that you believed. If you're a Christian, this is the word that you believe that saved your soul. It has power. The words of the gospel are in there. He wants us to receive it. He wants us to hear it and respond to it. The word of God is meant to be used. The reality is that when we approach God this way, and when we approach his word this way, we will be transformed. Our approach to others will move from passivity to love. The cure for self-centeredness is Christ-centeredness. So unlike the man who looks in the mirror and forgets what he looks like, here's what James has to say about the one who is active in his hearing of the word of God. Look at me at verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And so James is using new terms now to describe God's word. He's introducing this term, the perfect law, and he also says the law of liberty and Uh, When James calls the word of God the perfect law, uh, he's emphasizing the attitude with which we should approach it. So, one, it's perfect. We don't come to the word of God with scissors or white out in a pen. God's word is perfect. We come to it and ask God, what about us he would want to change? How he would want to shape us with his word, not how we can shape his word. Number two, the, the word law just demands a response. We either obey a law, or we don't. There's a response necessary. So uh, when we passively break a law, we still break it. Action is required for obedience. Then James talks about the law of liberty. If you think about a law, you're like, wait, aren't laws restricted? How, uh, restricted? How could there be a law of liberty? Well, freedom isn't actually the absence of restriction. It's the absence of bondage. So there are actually laws that have uh, ensured the freedom of people in our country. If you think about the 13th Amendment in the U.S. Constitution prohibiting slavery. God's law brings freedom. Each one of us has reasons uh, why we might relate to the bystanders there. But if you uh, think about the freedom to love coming from God's law, then, then that is something that supersedes those reasons. Did did the reasons behind the inactivity um, speak of bondage or did they speak of freedom? So worrying about what people think, that's not freedom. God's word brings freedom. Doers of the word are free. They're free to lay aside filthiness and rampant wickedness, to use James' words uh, from a few few verses back. Freedom is when we use the, God, the word of God to outgrow our self-centeredness, to outgrow our self-deceit, to live out the perfect law of our creator. James says that God's law is the law of liberty, and, and he says that when we look intently at the law and act, when we persevere, we're blessed in our actions. We've talked about blessing and what that means, and we've used this definition. To be blessed is to flourish and thrive as you live according to God's ways and experience his favor. James is saying that's a reality for the doer of the word. Living according to God's ways naturally overflows into flourishing, not just for us, but for those around us. It naturally wells up into this religion of activity that James is talking about. Listen to what James has to say about true religion. Look at me in verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So the religion that puts God's word into action pleases God. James lists out two characteristics of this religion. One is interpersonal and one is intrapersonal. One covers our responsibility for others, and one covers our responsibility for ourselves. And note the order that he listed those in. Aid those in need, and keep yourself unstained from the world. Visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Throughout the Old Testament, God is the champion of the vulnerable, particularly orphans and widows. If you look at what he says in Isaiah 117, God says to his people, Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. The call isn't just restricted to orphans and widows, but all who are afflicted, all who are vulnerable, all who are oppressed. How are we aiding those in need? And the second car- category is to remain unstained from the world. And I, I said to note that he didn't put this one first. We're not supposed to passively watch people suffer in the name of remaining unstained. To be unstained from the world is to, as he said a few verses back, lay aside filthiness, lay aside wickedness. And remember, one of the reasons that people didn't help Mark as he laid in the, on, on the road was that uh, other people weren't doing it. Inaction, in action. That's the type of stain that we're trying to avoid. Remember when James said, anger doesn't bring about the righteous plan of God. If you turn on your TV, if you turn on social media, you'll see, quick to speak, slow to hear, angry people thinking that they can build a better world. That's the stain that we want to avoid. The people of God are supposed to be meek, humble, gentle, transformed by God's word and set free to love. If you can truly love, that's freedom. That's what pure religion is. That's the motivation for a religion of word-based activity. James is gonna bring up the royal law just a few verses after this. Klein will probably preach on that. Um, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. There's no greater law of liberation than that. If you think back to the two opening stories, the inspiring one of the rescue of Rebecca contrasted with the tragic death of Mark and the passive hands of bystanders. Why were the outcomes so drastically different? If the rule is that more bystanders equals less helpers, then Roberta's story breaks the rule. Why? Love. One story began with a mother motivated by love to rescue her children, and a grandmother, then a stranger with a boogie board, then her husband, then about 80 strangers linking arms to execute a -a one-of-a-kind rescue mission. A grandmother had a heart attack in the water. Do you think she was thinking about how she looked? Do you think uh, she was wondering what other people were doing? Do you think she was even thinking about her own life? Others who couldn't even swim were helping. So just as inactivity breeds inactivity, love breeds love. We have an active and loving father who sent his son, Jesus, God himself, of his own will, into the water on the greatest rescue mission of all time. Because if it were up to us, we would drown. Jesus enters in with intention and sacrifice, the ultimate hearer and doer of God's word, the ultimate liberator. He signed the law of liberty with his blood. Where we were passive and disobedient, he was active, obeying the perfect law perfectly, all the way to the cross. Where we were self-interested, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. Where we try to save face, he was humiliated. Where we're unbridled and angry, he was meek. Our resistance to the love of God and to loving our neighbor has been overcome by his pure and undefiled religion. He was afflicted for the afflicted, and he died unstained by the world. Jesus fulfilled the perfect law by obeying it completely and taking the punishment for our disobedience. He's the ultimate expression of God's word. In fact, he's called the word of God. And if you believe in him, your liberation was sealed the day God raised him from the grave. And he invites us to follow him. He invites us to respond to his love with love, to believe in him. Uh, Some of you are going to hear this sermon, do absolutely nothing. That's just a fact. Some of you are going to feel like you have to do everything. But both of these responses are bondage. God isn't out to transform people into mere hearers or mere doers. We need to come to him in humble dependence, not apathy or self-reliance. We are linked to the one who loves. So let's rely on his word to rely on His strength as we respond to love with love.